0: In the 1890s, a British shipping clerk named Edmund Morrill noticed the Belgians were shipping vast quantities of rubber from the Congo, then a Belgian colony. But the only thing they were sending in return were guns, explosives, and chains. Morrill uncovered a scandal that shook the world. As it turned out, Belgian King Leopold II was running Congo as his own private plantation, using horrific violence to keep the population working. Which makes Oren Conheim wonder, Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Hello, and welcome to Why Is it Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a moment in history or a book or a story where we can rip from the headlines and ask Hollywood why no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vega, and joining me this week is Oren Conheim, a journalist whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, ESPN Magazine, and Mental Floss. Oren, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Tell us about Edmund Moral and the horrors he uncovered in the Congo Free State.
1: It's such a pleasure. Um, so a lot of my work has come from a book called Adam Rothschild's, although I have made a lot of effort to reframe it so that I have a specific Hollywood-ready story. I first got into the topic when I was at a train station and I got this book called King Leopold's Ghost. And I was a geography major in college. Geography is a lot about how the map shapes human activity and vice versa. So I had a vague idea of, we study colonization a lot, and I had a vague idea of the Congo a little bit through a great geography of Sub-Saharan Africa course. Did you know much about the Congo before looking into this topic?
0: Not anywhere near the, like the depth of tragedy, what happened here. I'm reminded of a quote that somebody said that stayed with me about slavery, which was that no matter how bad you think it was, it was worse. And it applies to colonialism on the whole, because I knew Congo was a Belgian colony. The Belgians, like most of the European colonial powers, didn't treat their colonies particularly well but i had i had no idea it was as bad as it was
1: one thing i learned in in geography was to treat each country and each power on a case by case basis and colonization was certainly can be done more humanely can be done less humanely i knew that of all the colonial overlords king leopold was known as bloody king leopold so that always tipped me off before i read this book that well he must be somewhere at the bottom of the list of human rights abuses but i think that Having read a very long book about him, I think he didn't set around to be evil with a twirling mustache. I think he wanted to extract resources and do it in a way. And people in Africa were sort of byproducts of that. Certainly, there was a lack of humanity that got worse as it went along. So, to just briefly catch you up on where things were when E.D. Morrell entered the picture, King Leopold was a person who ascended to power at a time when. Kings didn't necessarily have a lot of power. He had the misfortune of uh, coming into a parliament in, in Belgium that sort of overruled the king on a lot of issues. But he realized that if he were to have a colony, he would have a lot more of a say in how it was run, and could create wealth on his own. So he sort of aggressively researched in libraries and stuff and everything about how colonization worked, and one thing that I thought was interesting was that colonization was sort of an old boys club, a little bit, in the sense that France, Spain, England, they wanted to, even if they were fighting wars against each other, they would not allow other countries into the, uh, into the club, kind of, of having overseas territories.
0: Well, there was a steep divide between the Western European countries that were on the coast and had navies, And the sort of Central European, Eastern European, like landlocked countries who really just weren't in a position to, you know, to go to the Americas, to go to Africa and start start brutally oppressing people.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, just there were already existing treaties that were hundreds of years old. So King Leopold would go to Brazil and try to buy land. He would go to he would try to buy land in Canada, actually. And so he realized he had a very clever way around this, which was to put up a conference in what I believe was 1870s or 1880s, where he started his plan to, under humanitarian guise, to create a humanitarian society for the treatment of sort of a creation of a, a sort of a utopia for the natives, like Liberia.
0: Yeah, that is such a brutal like twist of the knife that he out- outwardly set this up as a humanitarian effort. And I think most Europeans, most Belgians probably believe that.
1: He created a society. It was a name that was very charming. It was like the Society of the Free Congo or something. I don't know.
0: Well, it's all and, such doublespeak where it's all presented as this very beneficial well, exactly, thing. Yeah, yeah. And but then he, to be he ran fair, his-
1: He got more progressively cruel as things went along. That's one thing true, is that there was one phase where he was sort of bartering with the locals and, and they were... Having a system where if you fulfilled your quota, they wouldn't necessarily do bad things to you. And then he started when it went from the ivory trade to the rubber trade, he started imprisoning entire villages and burning them down, and burning down women and children unless the husbands would come back. And
0: that's often that's often the story with you know Europe's overseas colonies that it starts off it never starts off benign, but it, there's different degrees of bad. And you, know, you saw with, with Columbus reaching uh, the Caribbean, it started off with like, oh, maybe we can trade with these people. Well, maybe we can just take their gold. Oh, maybe we can just like work them to death until they mine gold for us. And then well, at the end, like well, maybe we yeah. can just enslave and murder these people.
1: So King Leopold created a conference, invited several social scientists to it to create solutions and presented himself and his conference as a way to create a more enlightened Africa. And that was as you point out, a hypocrisy, but it was also his way in, he would offer something different, which was, we are creating a grand experiment. And he also, with that, he was able to move explorers rather than soldiers into this land. And he did it. And I thought that was also another fascinating thing of how he sort of, you know, was able to say to his government, I am not putting Belgium in this place. I am putting this experimental society here. So therefore, it wasn't like a violation of any laws or putting Belgium in harm's way.
0: Right, but it was actually kind of a clever dodge to get out from under Parliament's oversight because... Y-
1: yeah, exactly.
0: It, yeah, it wasn't answerable to the Belgian government. It was answerable answerable to him personally.
1: Which was a lot of what he wanted, as most rulers wanted, which was autonomy. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. And... He enlisted a guy named um, Henry Morton Stanley as a man who also did actually happen to be pretty cruel backwards and somewhat incompetent. Most men who agreed to work under Henry Morton Stanley most uh, died. He also enlisted a lot of native porters who were put to a lot of cruelty. They developed a habit of whipping people. And again, this is something of where cruelty, I think, sometimes is on a country by country basis, I think Belgium sort of created a culture of practices that were, that became more and more inhuman.
0: Well, the worst thing that I saw and the thing that stuck with me was that they would cut people's hands off.
1: Yes, um, exactly. If they,
0: if they didn't work hard enough and there was, there are actually photos from this era. It was kind of the very beginning of photography. And one that just haunts me is a man just looking at a tiny severed foot, which was all that was left of his like five-year-old daughter. It was just brutality on a scale that, you know, even even by the standards of like colonial atrocities and slavery, like the, it still shocks you how like how, just how brutal the treatment of the Congolese people were.
1: And that's one one interesting thing was that in 1888, slavery was outlawed in Brazil. King Leopold began in 1885. He was beginning to be in an era where slavery was out of favor and This was not something that Europe wanted to be complicit in. If, say, news of King Leopold's atrocities were to put out on the front pages of European newspapers, the people reading it would be disgusted. So King Leopold had something to hide, per se.
0: Right, right, right. Well, so let's get into Edmund Morrill and how he uncovers what Leopold had to hide.
1: Okay, but I also want to mention something else, which is that King Leopold's Cruelty kind of happened in two phases. One was there was the ivory trade, which we initially got into. The ivory trade was not as labor intensive and it could be done by villagers relegated by local chieftains. The local chieftains would often um, manage quotas and they would work with the locals. And
0: But he's still basically leaving the existing sort of society and power structure intact.
1: To some degree, yes. This was also an era where hands were being chopped off. They also created something called the force public because they couldn't necessarily import that many Europeans to manage such a wide army. Some people were constricted, some people joined, some chieftains sold their villagers into the force public. But that's the army that the Congo used. What made things about a hundred times worse was that rubber started to become in demand. Rubber is an extremely labor-intensive crop in which you have to put this entire caustic substance about among your body. You have to climb vines and tap the vines this was around the time that the wheel was being put in wide use which was made of rubber this was something where you could not incentivize the locals enough to create the rubber even if you put a gun to their head they would just say okay i'm not doing that it was an exhaustive it was that much of a labor-intensive process so what happened was they would come to your village and they would put everyone in the village together. They would entrap them in a pen, so they would kidnap everyone, and they would threaten to burn down the women and children and burn down every other structure in the village unless the men went out and got enough rubber to save their village's lives. So that sort of was the second phase of it, and that became an extremely toxic thing.
0: And one of the things underlying, like every colony and every aspect of the slave trade like when you talk about american slavery there's a kind of argument about how the north was complicit because we benefited from the economic you know benefits of slavery in the south which is absolutely true it's sometimes trotted out as say both sides are the same argument which isn't which also isn't true because the north wasn't actively enslaving people um, at least at least after a certain point but the entire modern world was built on the products of the slave trade because rubber sugar cotton all these goods that transformed the world between the 19th and 20th centuries were all very difficult to procure or produce, and were all created by slave labor.
1: Well, before we get to E.D. Morel, we should also note that one of the two other central figures in the story that I'm imagining had made his first trip to Congo. He was a consul uh, for the British government, first, I believe, in Niger, somewhere in the French or German territories in West Africa, when he was first assigned to the Congo. And coincidentally, he shared quarters on his first trip and struck up a friendship with a Joseph Conrad who would go on to write Heart of Darkness. I'm sure you're familiar with that mostly from uh, Apocalypse Now or from the original book. So that that
0: was still a book everybody read in English class when I was when I was in school.
1: Exactly. And it was uh, certainly one of the very best selling, if not the best selling book uh, in Europe for a certain period of time. Joseph Conrad would use his experiences in the Congo to talk about the horrors of a metaphorical horror in the middle of the jungle, but he was based on actual horrors, specifically someone who I think could be a character in the story. The one speculation is the Congo Free State Police Chief, Leon Ram, who did decorate his garden with severed heads of African rebels.
0: We had some Zoom issues at this point in the call, and I just wanted to jump in to say that uh, Orrin didn't get to finish his thought, which is that Rom is believed to be the inspiration for Kurtz, who's the madman at the sort of center of the story, and who's also the inspiration for the Marlon Brando character, Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now.
1: And there is documentation. Joseph Conrad, at this point, was keeping a detailed diary, and he did mention Roger Caseman in his diary and said that the two had interesting conversation and compared notes. And similarly, Roger Caseman was a... An explorer who would go on to um, create very, very detailed documents, which would later put on the undoing of King Leopold himself. Uh, as for Ed Morel, you're absolutely right. He was a shipping clerk. He was assigned to Antwerp and several ports in France because he was multilingual. He was also a man with four or five kids, certainly something to lose, and he reported this to his boss. The boss was actually an acquaintance of King Leopold, and he did not like this sort of uncovering of facts. And so he promoted him upwards. That was as an attempt to get rid of the situation. And this is where I think E.D. Morel, you know, dramatically refused to be silenced. And he allied with a number of intellectuals in England to start a newspaper. And this is where a lot of information came in from various missionaries and ex people who had done service in the Congo, where reports kept being sent in and they kept being publicized in England and across Europe.
0: Right. And then this turns into a huge scandal.
1: Yeah. And it takes several years to unroll, partially because King Leopold is extremely PR savvy. He counters a lot of these things by saying, you know, he sends people on exhibition tours. He sends a number of travel writers, including uh, one female travel writer, a sort of Nellie Bly of her age. But when he sends these people down to the Congo, he puts them on an agenda on an itinerary. There's only one train that goes into Leopoldville, which is, I believe today, Kinshasa. And there's only one way in. And so he knows the itinerary these people are going on. And he puts on his diplomat to show him the version of Congo he wants them to see. He also controls the information that goes into and out of Congo. There is a story about a man named George Washington Williams, who was very concerned about this, but he actually died on his way out of um, the Congo because, again, it's an area with a lot of malaria and things of that nature, and his notes were never published. Guess who was behind that, you know? Right, right. I think there's always the question of what do people care about the things that are happening when they're around them, and to some degree, there were, and especially because a lot of the people populating congo or missionaries and some people said that missionaries were so embedded in the philosophy of how it was better to educate and to re-educate and to christianize people and that would be better for them that the little things like torture and cutting their hands off that's it's all good in the name of christianity
0: right, right. um
1: there were several christians uh, particularly uh, the swedish missionaries who were concerned but again the um things that left the Congo, letters and things that left the Congo were approved by offices that would censor things. So there was an information war that someone like Ido Morel would w- would prove the anecdote against.
0: Well, that, then as now, you can try to report on the ground what's happening, but you've got somebody trying to shout you down and saying fake news. And then you also have, you know, Belgium was benefiting economically from this. So I'm sure there were a lot of people who were invested in looking the other way,
1: yes, and there were pr- well, probably
0: people who did hear the accurate story and you know it was so horrific you sort of don't believe it you think it must be it must be exaggerated.
1: I think that there was yeah there certainly were commercial interests like Ed Morrell's uh, overseer, but again I do believe that the public which necessarily wasn't the business interest would have known. I mean, indeed, they did know. I mean, indeed, inquiries, the more that E.D. Morel published, the more inquiries were launched. And the more that Belgium said, this is a disaster, we can't continue this, you know. But I will say that, yes, Belgium agreed to be more involved in the colonies, in the colonial holdings, as it was turning profit. And King Leopold was showing that this was a workable solution, rather than just some theoretical construct. Um, Roger Casement was also a, such a humongous hero when you talk about on-the-ground reporting. He was one of the men sent on fact-finding messages missions at E.D. Morels or urging. He saw the level of detail in his notes and felt that this was not a person who was just a pencil pusher. This was a person who could potentially paint an accurate picture. And Roger Casement was smart enough not to take the, the train. Uh, he hired his own porters and did a lot of his, his fact-finding incognito so he could get the story that King Leopold didn't want him to see.
0: Right, right, right. So he, did did Morell ever go to Congo? Did these two men ever come face-to-face?
1: No, actually, E.D. Morel actually did a lot of his work in his own home, actually. I thought that was another interesting thing. And I was thinking, you know, again, we're talking about making this into a movie, that Roger Casement would be a figure that, Edie Morrell's life was not necessarily that exciting. He was a newspaper publisher working from home.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And, you know, cinematically, that might not play as well as Roger Casement, who was a man who had sort of traveled the world in, you know, tight cores and steamships and braved the Amazon and braved a lot of different areas, you know. So.
0: Well, I think you can make an interesting contrast.
1: Yeah, you know, exactly.
0: with with these two corresponding, and somebody living this kind of dangerous, exciting life, and then this you know file clerk sipping tea in his home with his kids.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and it's and, also- and how yet
0: you you needed both of those guys to uncover that story.
1: And the author Adam Halschild really tries to get psychologically into uh, Edie Morrell in terms of why was it he that so was so brave and risking so much. They looked into his religious upbringing. They looked into he came from a community of a slightly religious community he was church going. They looked into his parents or, you know, the way he was raised and said, it's sort of an interesting thing. I think um, Roger Caseman was a bit of a man who lived with a bit more danger. He had a little bit of nothing to lose. What was also interesting about Roger Caseman was that he was, uh, he was gay and he was, he would document times where he, he would document his sexual balances in his journals huh. It sounds like he might have paid people in far off places or he might have, I think he would just say like, I spent $25 on this sexual thing, you know, Right, right. and that would have ruined him. Like, and he just, it was just, you yeah, know, Yeah, in that era, like, why would you,
0: why, why would you write everything down and leave a trail of evidence?
1: I think it was documenting his expenses or just sort of jotting down, like you're just keeping journals and stuff like that.
0: Right. Maybe he's going to try to deduct sex workers on his taxes.
1: But he was a man who wrote a lot. I, You know, he would write very detailed reports, and he would write, which was very good. And he and E.D. And Morrell, actually, they certainly were conscious of the fact that they were doing something big, and in a way, they were both very quixotic about this. And I think they're, that's how I would like to frame the story. Like, if you look at sort of, you could do it like Schindler's List or 12 Years a Slave, where it's just a very negative thing or you could do something like hotel rwanda or black hawk down or you know where we're talking about a little bit of a a little bit of a slice of heroism in this story
0: right right well i think i think you i think you can kind of split the difference i think you can't i think it's irresponsible not to show how horrific this was yeah and yet you also want to hinge the story on like people who uncovered this and made things better
1: for me 12 years a slave was a brilliant film but there are so many scenes of just we're just watching Lupita and Yango just get beaten and tortured and we're just watching Chuwetelaji for uh, get, get stripped of his humanity for so long and i'm not sure if i would want such a film as opposed to i don't know i'm not sure the degree to which we want to revel in the bad things that happen
0: well it's one of those you to, know brilliant yeah. movies that i'm not in a, not in a hurry to watch again because so much of it was so yeah. hard to take but at the same time that's the that's the story like this course, is this yeah. is, you know, it's it's a brutal story that's hard to take reading the actual history of it. But I also think one thing Twelve Years of Slave does well is it tackles these grand historical themes by narrowing it down to a couple of people and very humanizing it. And I think you can do that here.
1: Yeah. You know also we've... another thing might be mudbound. Uh, I don't know if you saw the D. Rees film where yeah, yeah. where you just kind of get into the very kind of like socioeconomic things and the sort of personal interactions between the people with power and the people without power in that kind of community,
0: and well, we can we can get into this when we talk about casting, but I think, of course, um, yeah, I think history doesn't really record a lot of specific Congolese people because the Belgians, a, were writing the story. You know, even even the well-intentioned Belgians were writing the story and sort of saw the people in Congo as being disposable and kind of interchangeable. So I think, exactly. as, as a screenwriter, you you have to invent some characters to humanize that side of things. Because you're going to have people on the ground with Casement who he's friendly with and knows and, you know, is sympathetic to their plight. And so, yeah, it's not hard to create a couple of characters who. You can
1: also, you can also have uh, Leon Rom, you show him, you show severed heads in his, in his thing, you show, and you see examples of cruelty. You show, I would definitely show people being beaten. I don't know how many hours of it I would show, how many, how long I would, you know. Whatever that one is, the that uh, one in Kosovo is a Black Hawk Down where you just show a little bit of the military, but, you know, not too much. I don't know.
0: Well, I think brutality on this scale, like a little bit goes a long way.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I don't, th- I don't
0: think you need to see a dozen people getting their hands cut off. I think, one, you know, once is going to be shocking enough.
1: There's also so much interesting about the way that even today, Congo's African-born president viewed the people as disposable next to the resources, because Congo has always been rich in resources. It, After rubber, it became copper. And then it became s- certain rare minerals that could be used in semiconductors. Congo is just abs- an absolutely one of the richest places in the world. And the people have never seen any reasonable share of the sort of profits from that wealth.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And that's, I think, a theme that, you know, ivory is so much that, yeah, human rights be damned, then rubber is so much that human rights be even more damned, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. And and there is something, I don't know how you work that into this movie necessarily, but there is this, you know, this tragic legacy of colonialism that even 200 years later, these countries haven't rebounded and, you know, people as a whole, like you said, haven't seen the benefits of, of their own wealth, their own labor.
1: Well, again, a lot of it is um, infrastructure, for example. And again, I'm, Not by many means saying that, you know, certain places were perfect, but again, like Kenya and Rhodesia, which is Zimbabwe and Zambia and Botswana uh, were settled by the British where they were developed a bit more of an infrastructure. They didn't, they built roads inside, not just every roads only linking to the port city. The Democratic Republic of Congo, there were less than 20 people with a college education in the whole country of millions by the time they got independence when they were given self government pretty immediately they had very little ability to run that government as opposed to subsistence farming and they were suddenly in a cash economy now so like there was no going back
0: right right right
1: it largely depends on how each colonial overlord did it and so i think it's specifically interesting to note that belgium specifically had no interest in developing the people there for any sort of self-governing future
0: yeah, exactly. England was kind of trying to create little mini Englands with their colonies. Yeah,
1: and they actually had a lot of English people in the colonies. And right, they also right. were going after, like, uh, Kenya was actually like tea, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Oh, yeah. So there was
1: sense. much less labor intensive practices.
0: Yeah, there, there are all these different factors that, that contribute to, I think one, one mistake we make in terms of dealing with colonialism and slavery and, and the world in general is thinking that all bad things are equally bad.
1: Exactly, yeah. You know,
0: things can be bad and then much, much worse. And it's an important distinction to make.
1: We certainly want to talk about King Leopold as a specific brand of bad, as opposed to all colonial overloads are bad, you know?
0: I actually think you can say they're all bad, but to very, very, very different degrees. Because it's not like the English treated people from Ireland to India. It's not like they treated their subjects particularly well in any of their colonies. But there's there's a big gulf between taxing tea in America and then there's a you know a big step down to how people were treated in India and then there's a big step down to like lighting people on fire and cutting their hands off like um, exactly
1: exactly and that was actually if I'm not mistaken they did actually emulate people died of immolation of uh being killed on fire that was yeah so do you want to talk about the production of the movie now or yeah yeah
0: who did you have in mind to direct because I
1: I was thinking we could do Gavin Hood, who was a South African director who did win the Oscar for Tsotsi in 2005 and did uh, Eye in the Sky, which I thought was an amazing film. Another option could be Edswick, who is pretty good with epics and great scenery. I've seen him in Blood Diamond and The uh, Last Samurai. Oh, yeah. Which I felt like both those films I was taken very well to a different world in a far off land.
0: Yeah, I think you need to be able to do that here. Well, you'd mentioned Twelve Years a Slave, and I actually had the only name I had was Steve McQueen, who directed that film and Shame and Widows, and he's a he's a terrific director who can you know so far he's shown us he can do any material very well, but specifically he can tackle historical atrocities, you know, with sensitivity and make an interesting story out of it, and make it compelling and not to, you know, there are so many sort of tightrope to walk with this story, you don't yeah. want you don't want to kind of gloss over the atrocities. You don't want to wallow in them too much and just make a torture porn. You don't want to make it too much of a white savior trope. You, you know, there's there's so many pitfalls in this, and I think he's somebody who can, you know, deftly avoid all of those.
1: Well, I mean, Twelve Years a Slave would be kind of something I'm not. I don't want to do too much emphasis on the torture, so that might be a different, I, I would ha- I would probably give him some directorial notes of let's not um let's not focus. Let's not make this too much of a movie that can't be rewatched, I guess. Yeah, and and I think the... the... I wouldn't watch it twice. It's a beautiful... I like the movie a lot still. It's in my top 10 of that year.
0: I think the director you choose depends a lot on the tone that you want.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do admire Steve McQueen, his treatment of widows, and I think I saw another movie of his, so I know that he has a really wide range, and he could actually make a film exciting too. I think 12 Years a Slave was definitely something where I was excited in the story, and that actually is a... Sometimes like a film like Terrence Malick in, in the worst case scenario where you, the story is just very plastic and you don't care about it. Like, I would actually admire that about a Steve McQueen film.
0: Well, that's the thing. Yeah, he's really good at humanizing the characters. And Widows 2, which had a very different tone.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And so, I, you know, I think if you wanted this with a different tone, I think Steve McQueen could probably deliver.
1: I'm trying to think. I wonder what Ryan Cogler could do with it. The director of Black Panther? Is it Ryan Kogler? Oh, Kogler, cool. yeah, McQueen? yeah. You do mention the white savior trope, and we are going to have two white saviors. Well, I mean, that's that's literally
0: what happened, yeah. But I also think the way to, I mean, this is literally a story about white people who save people, like that's, you can't sidestep that, but I think you, you make more of an effort to humanize the black characters than maybe, you know, this movie would have done if it were made 20, 30 years ago. You know the story better than I do. I only had a couple people on my cast list, so we were talking about this earlier, that I think you need to invent some Congolese characters. And, and, you know, make them important to the story because you need to be able to humanize the people, you know, who were there yeah, no and who were very proud
1: Yes, if we could put in the screen time, then I think that's a great idea. But let's, let's, let's
0: get into cast and who you had in mind for, for everyone.
1: Okay, so, well, perhaps we should compare a cast list because I think I have a rather big cast list. The case of King Leopold also has a few characters. Like, I think he would need a confidant to talk to, so he would need an advisor.
0: Right, right. Okay, that makes sense.
1: I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a guy named Emperor Maximilian, who was an Austrian nobility who went to Mexico and tried to run Mexico for a while. Then he was run out of town and executed. He was married to King Leopold's sister. Wow. And she went to – before he was executed, Maximilian was losing support. And she went back to Europe in vain to attempt to gain more support, gain more military support for his regime. And when she heard that her husband had been killed, she went insane and was put in seclusion. Not necessarily a mental asylum, but she was put in seclusion in Belgium, in right next to where King Leopold was. So I thought she would be an interesting character. King Leopold did visit her. He humored her, and he did not... Break the news to the truth that like her empire had crumbled and that you know her husband's cause was lost and that she even didn't even remember that her husband was dead.
0: So that's like a whole other movie.
1: Well, she could be a confidant for him.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: someone to bounce thoughts off. King Leopold also had a very curious love affair, or love of his life, actually, with a teenage prostitute who he spotted in a conference in Paris he procured her as an audience, not necessarily to be a prostitute, and he doted on her and made her the love of his life. She had been in a relationship with a banker who she secretly maintained a relationship with this low-class banker who ended up being her, like, pimp. Okay. And at the end of her life, I think... At the end of his life, I think she moved. She came back to him. So she might have been unfaithful, but... We're asking the question of where his wealth went. A lot of it went to this young mistress who eventually became his wife and bore him a child that lived to the year 1984. Wow. Yeah. Also, one of the longest surviving members of this whole saga is the sister, Was probably one of the only people who passed through World War One, not realizing that World War One was happening. Oh, right. Yeah. She was just completely out of it. And she didn't know her brother died. She lived to the year 1927. She would be a great morality, pride as this, is this young prostitute. So there are those characters. But you're absolutely right that we should have a couple of um, colonies characters. So I guess we could go down the casting list now.
0: Yeah, yeah. That let me know probably,
1: who you have. King Leopold, I have Christoph Waltz. Kind oh, yeah, of that's, obvious.
0: That's, yeah, that's good.
1: What do you have?
0: I actually didn't have, I wasn't sure how much of a figure in the story he's going to be, whether this is all... Whether he's sort of spoken about... I have morell and Caseman as the leads... And I had a list of actors to play, you know, sort of Congolese characters in general. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But all these figures back in Europe, I wasn't sure how important the story they were going to be. So I didn't come up with people. So let's just hear what you have. Because I think oh, Waltz, is, I Waltz is a great to, choice.
1: I mean, I think I, you also look at films like, I don't know, Darkest Hour or something where they have the like, you see the enormity and the grandiosity and the architecture and the interior and the production design. And I wanted to kind of really contrast. Sort of the conditions in the Congo, with the lavish palaces that you know.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That uh, King Leopold was building. He he intended to build a big school or something. There was a slight hint of him being a little bit like Andrew Carnegie and Mellon, who found who took their robber fortunes and founded Carnegie Mellon University and stuff. But I really don't think it was going to be anything accessible to the masses of Belgium.
0: Yeah. At the yeah, end of the yeah.
1: day, I think you know. Yeah. So I thought Christoph Waltz, the quintessential European, sophisticated person. Then we go to E.D. Morales, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought he seems more like an intellectual, not like a fighter kind of guy, not a man of action. He's a guy who is, you know, I just I always think of him as a thinker and as, as a great actor. And you could a man who probably, well, Adam Hothschild kind of gets a little bit difficult to get a handle on him because he didn't write as much about why he was doing what he was doing. We just know that he was absolutely steadfast and resolved to not buckle under any smears or attacks against him and to continue even when it was inconvenient. I mean, I just saw The Courier, where Benedict Cumberbatch is a spy in the Cold War. He doesn't buckle under the pressure when he's in the prison. So I felt that quality was oh, yeah, parallel.
0: Yeah. And he's somebody you can see peering over ledgers. Because I considered him too for Morel, but Morrell was in his 20s. And I felt like you wanted somebody sort of young and fairly unassuming. Because again, this is this is a file clerk. It's not a you know sort of man of action. I think Cumberbatch works for that too. Um, I had Daniel Radcliffe from the Harry Potter movies because in the course of trying to outgrow Harry Potter, he's turned into a, a very versatile actor who always makes interesting choices. And he's very, very English.
1: I would have trouble not seeing him as Harry Potter. I mean, I, as an audience would be, would typecast him pretty heavily. <laughs> I understand from his agent's perspective, you don't want that, but I would be like, oh, Harry Potter is in this? like, Yeah, I guess,
0: I guess I've seen him in enough other stuff. And, you know, he's like an adult man with a beard, like he's... <laughs>
1: Yeah, excellent. I mean, like, Ron Howard is, like, probably 80, and I just think I still think of him as Opie and Richie from Happy Days. I wouldn't take him, you know.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Who did you have for Casement? Because the, that's the other casting that I had.
1: Uh, I put Ben Wishaw. Oh, yeah. He looks a bit more of an outsider. He he is gay in real life, which isn't necessarily... I don't think that you have to be gay to play a gay character.
0: But it's a nice bit but, of like... um uh,
1: Yeah, a- and uh, certainly... Being gay wasn't necessarily a thing that sort of defined him, I think, in the story. We uh, certainly, certainly but, um, but, and I also think that, again, he's, he's kind of an, a little bit more of an outsider, a wiry outsider, and just a very talented actor. I imagine you probably didn't try to cast Joseph Conrad, but.
0: No, I wasn't sure how involved in this story he was. For Casement, I actually like your idea better. I had Tom Hiddleston, because he's been kind of absorbed by the Marvel machine as late, but he started off as like a very respected theater actor, you know, he's really got acting chops and it would be nice to see him get to do that outside of being Loki. That being said, I I love Wishon. I think actually he might be a better choice.
1: Tom Hillstone is also taller and more intimidating, so he doesn't have that underdog quality, I guess. He is well over six feet tall and has a very kind of a robust frame, so.
0: And he is one of those kind of leading man actors who just projects confidence. Whereas I think Wishon has a lot more range.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I would want someone who seems to physically project being a bit more of an underdog.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but Wishaw's also somebody who, like, it feels like Caseman's very adaptable. Yeah. That he can go into kind of any situation and handle himself. And I think, I think Wishaw would do that very well.
1: No, I think what's also interesting is that this could sort of be an epilogue. Do you know, I'm not sure if you know what happened at the end of Caseman and Morell's lives.
0: No, I don't know. How did things end up for them?
1: They were both imprisoned in World War I and their lives were both in danger. Wow. One of them survived, one of them didn't. In fact, it, so um, Caseman, became right. an advocate for Irish independence to the degree that he he basically renounced his citizenship and he actually boarded a, U, a German U-boat during World War I. So he became an enemy of the state and then he was put in prison. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he became extremely passionate about Irish and he wrote everything. So there was a humongous paper trail of his disloyalty to England. Oh yeah, yeah. So he was put in prison and actually Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, which was in the friend circle of E.D. Morrell and Roger Casement, was one of the people who defended him as trial, did some unofficial defense of him. E.D. Morel, his newspaper became somewhat of a hotbed of thought, and he was also put on trial. The two were very close friends, but Casement and E.D. Morel decided that Morrell would not visit him personally at what would have been his deathbed because they said it would just implicate him and make him look bad. Roger Caseman was executed, although he was actually very happy. It was noted that he was very peaceful in his final years. He was very at peace with it. Edie Morel was released after, I believe, like a year or so in prison. He was elected to Parliament and became very well known as a champion of the working people. Definitely, like, I don't think he ran for prime minister, but I think he was pretty close to that level of power in the Parliament.
0: You know, as you were describing all this stuff and, like, the, the Arthur Conan Doyle being in their circle and things... I'm starting to think this might work better. I guess it depends on how you want to do this. If you want to narrow the scope of the story, this could make a very compelling movie, but you could also widen the scope and make a series that has time to get into like King Leopold's incredibly colorful life and the people around him and, you know, sort of the era in in Britain and Belgium and the people that these people were rubbing elbows with. And then you have time to get more into sort of personal stories happening in the Congo. Like there's just, this is one of those, you know, it's an onion, you keep peeling away layers. There's just so much to the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, Adam Hothschild's book is, you know, 400 sub pages, and you could even modernize it past King Leopold, because in 1908, when the king was forced to cede the land, Belgium ran it. It was slightly different. I mean, the reforms were drawn, but I mean, again, you didn't have the infrastructure to run yourself very efficiently in an economy that was entirely different from what it was before Europeans came there. Right, right, and there is a theme of in an area where it's so mineral rich, it's so rich with things. Whoever runs it, the lower classes are just not getting the cut of it, and that's happening still today. Right, right. Congo right, is a gruesome place right now, and
0: and they also had like a decade long civil war.
1: Exactly, and but this podcast is why is it this a movie, and I do think this could be a great movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the problem with history is that it doesn't end; it just keeps the, the story keeps going and going and going. And I think you yeah. have to. Yeah, I think you have to sort of draw a line in, in terms of the scope of this movie. You can get into all these fascinating stories that were happening at the time, and then the history afterwards, going up to the present day. But I think, I think ultimately, it's the story of like moral encasement bringing this atrocity to the world's attention. And you have to kind of narrow your scope to that. But it's fun just hearing about all this other stuff and spin. You know, all the tangents you could spin off from this story.
1: Well, I think that you could put Charlotte in the story because the sort of wayward amnesia queen Charlotte. She's just a confidant to King Leopold, and you know a guard could sort of briefly explain her story. And she's
0: oh sure, but like
1: uh, there's something uh, thematically wonderful about her being oblivious to everything.
0: Yeah, that's true. I just feel um, like like um, th- there's so, there's so much going on in her story. Like I want I want that movie too. Yeah, you know. All right. Well, so who else did you have in the cast? You have somebody for Leopold. Well, we have long?
1: Joseph Conrad. Oh, and yeah. Joseph Conrad is a character to me that. He did write about it. He's a doppelganger of Roger Casement. The two were friends. They actually exchanged notes and stuff, which is important to do. They were both looking for information. and They both were a wealth of information to one another. But Joseph Conrad wrote a story. It wasn't a damning story about the Congo because he chose to make it about human nature. He didn't talk about the specific atrocities. He was inspired by it. So I think he's a different kind of character.
0: Oh, sure. yeah. Um, yeah.
1: I was thinking of Gwilym Lee, G-W-I-L-Y-M Lee, Gwilym Lee. I know him from the grade. He was also in... But Bohemian Rhapsody is, I think, probably his most profound movie role, where he was the uh, role of... Brian May. The the guy with the PhD who played the guitar, who shredded on the guitar. Brian May. Brian May, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Again, I think he looks like an outsider a little bit. He doesn't have as much of an aristocratic look. Yeah, yeah. Then we have, I guess, the wife of Benedict Cumberbatch's character. Oh, yeah, Moral. I... Yeah, so I originally thought that like I would do something really cool like Rosamund Pike, but then I thought, okay, let's just try to be realistic in the budget, and I thought maybe I would do Phoebe Fox. I don't
0: think I know She her.
1: is she is also from The Great. That's one of my favorite shows. It's about the coup of Peter and the rise of Catherine the Great. Oh, of course, Elle, yeah, yeah. Al yeah. Fanning and Nicholas Hoult are the main stars, but Phoebe Fox is the uh, kind of cunning maid servant who guides her through it. She's very sharp, very sardonic. I saw her in Eye in the Sky. She's been in Black Mirror as well, too. Oh yeah. Blue Iguana. She was in the Aeronauts with Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne. She's very beautiful and graceful and very witty. You know, I think you would just divide British actors into who has that aristocratic air.
0: Oh yeah. Okay, that makes sense.
1: Leon Rom. I have Daniel Brühl, who's in Rush. He was in Inglorious Bastards. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Did you? I did have some ideas about like who to play the Congolese characters okay, that were go ahead, sort of vetting yeah. the story because my starting place is usually like i started i tried to look for congolese actors not that any like not that you couldn't get african-american actors or british actors to play this but it's kind of a way that i narrow things down when i'm doing the casting and i couldn't find any Wonderful. congolese i couldn't find any congolese actors like acting in english language film there may be somebody i overlooked but i came up empty but i did try i did try to want to find some central african actors because Americans tend to lump all of Africa together in one place, and yet we also think it's ridiculous when Sean Connery plays an Irishman. Two countries over is Kenya, and there are a ton of terrific actors of Kenyan descent, including Lup- Lupita Nyong'o, who you mentioned, Eddie Gathegi from the Twilight movies and the Blacklist, Charles Benanie, I think I'm saying that right, who's a British actor who's in Shoot the Messenger and Fallout in the UK. There's a deep pool of talent there, and there's also a Canadian actor who I just saw in Station Eleven, which was a terrific HBO series. Who is uniquely qualified to be in this movie for terrible reasons? He, he's a Canadian actor. He was born in Ghana. He was horribly burned when his apartment caught fire a few years ago, and doctors had to amputate both of his forearms. It took him two years to recover. When he did, he went back to acting. He's acted on stage and on television. On Station Eleven, he's he you know he has a small supporting role, but with a not a ton of screen time, he manages the trick of making his disability go from being shocking to just being normal. You know because the story involves people losing limbs and having their hands cut off, you can portray that, you can do, you can sort of CGI away missing body parts like Gary Sinise and Forrest Gump, but it's far more convincing to have someone who's had to live with that disability for a long time and has learned to manage without his hands. Because one thing that really struck me in Station Eleven is that he's, like, he's very dexterous with his arms and is kind of able to do a lot and get by because he's had to do this in real life. And I, I think he, I'm sure he wears prosthetics in real life, but it's very natural for him, you know, because he's had to live with this for several years. And so, if you want to, you know, I think you ne- I think you need to kind of show up close, even if you don't want to hit it too hard and make the movie too grim. You do need to show like what was done to these people, and I think because he's had to, he's had to live with this in real life, he can probably better than anybody alive can portray somebody who has lost their hands and has had to manage with that for several years and has just kind of adapted to that.
1: I'm also reminded of Harold Russell the. Uh... Academy Award-winning actor. Who, oh, from *Best
0: Years of Our Lives*.
1: Who actually was not an actor? He was in a uh, industrial video showing how to make use of prosthetic hands because he lost his hands in the war, and then he won an Oscar playing yeah, a guy yeah. with no hands. That's a great idea. What did you say the name of that actor was?
0: Oh, Prince and Ponza. I don't. I might have forgotten to say his name. Were there any other characters you had uh, actors in mind for?
1: The prostitute and maybe Edie Morell's like boss, the one who could. Push him against him and tell him, like, no, this is not the way it should be.
0: Oh, sure. I was thinking maybe, maybe so, Bill Nighy, somebody like that.
1: I was thinking of one of my favorite actors, and then I discovered he was dead. So if you oh, allow okay. me to cast a dead actor in my last film, which was Rudger Hauer, can I cast one dead actor? Can you allow me what, that liberty? I mean,
0: we're, we're making this all up, so sure.
1: Let's say Ian Holm lived a few more years. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. He seems like a very, uh, you know, crusty old Englishman. Oh, yeah. And um, it's just, just among
0: the living, you want somebody in that mold.
1: Yeah. The prostitute I was thinking of as Emma Dumont. I don't, I don't know she, her. She was in the Gifted. She was in Bunheads. She was recently in Licorice Pizza in a small role as the flight attendant.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, like, she has a sort
1: of delicacy. Like in Bunheads, she's a ballerina. So she was also in Inherent Vice. Okay. She is born in 1994. So she is 27.
0: I was going to say she's in her mid twenties, but looks looks young enough to play a movie teenager.
1: I do want to ask you how you specifically would work the colony's characters in the storyline. I was thinking maybe you could have Jimon Hanso trying to save his daughter from being burned up or something.
0: You know, Casement's in the Congo. He's seeing these things happening right in front of him.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: he's and he, and he's trying to learn more and find out about the story. He's got to, he's got to get to know the people there and their lives. It can't just kind of be a backdrop. Like I think you involve Casement as a character you know, with the locals and get to know them and get to know their stories, you know.
1: A lot of people were also runaways. This was a territory that was extremely vast. So the best way to deal with the encroachment of the forced public was simply to run away from your village and everything.
0: Maybe that's your end of the story, that Casement is kind of off the grid exploring and he finds somebody else who's running away who tells him what he's running away from. And that gets Casement's interest. And then he starts investigating this stuff. And so then you've sort of paired him with a friend. So you got he's got somebody to talk to about this stuff who who knows the locale, knows the history, knows the people, you know. And then you can kind of economically tell the story of Casement getting more involved. And yeah, I think that's a good way because Casement kind of has to be your audience surrogate. Yeah. Because he's well, because he's an outsider going into Congo and learning about this, you know, as sort of as we are watching this movie unfold.
1: I envisioned that the story would start with Casement and Conrad meeting Rom for the first time. So like if in the first scene you're seeing the man get his hand chopped off or you're seeing Leon Rom's lodge where you're seeing those severed heads. So you're seeing two men experience this culture. They're both newbies to the Congo and they are writing it in their notepads. They're exchanging notes about it and they're going to make a name for themselves doing it in different ways. One writing Mm -hmm. a universally known exposé about human condition, one being writing a very specific exposé about this atrocity.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: And then I think, Ro- yeah, Roger Caseman will have interaction with Conrad, he'll have interaction with E.B. Morel, and through letters, and he'll have interaction with the locals, too. And I think it ends in World War One, of course. Oh, yeah, okay. Because, again, the two met different fates and they both paid a price for being very politically active.
0: Right, right, right.
1: yeah. Sure, you, yeah, anything first. else before we wrap it up? I guess if you were going to ask me where I could be found, it would be uh, patreon.com okay, journalist, And I am continuing to do a lot of journalism in the area, as well as blogging on film and television. I am on Twitter at OKONH0WP. I have a blog and a Medium account, inconheim.medium.com.
0: All right, well, that's our movie. And thanks again to Oren Conheim for coming back to the show. Uh, like he said, you can find his Patreon. You can find him on Twitter. And you can read student journalism, hear college radio, and listen to other lesser podcasts on our parent website, subjectmedia.org. Keep yourself sane, get yourself boosted. We'll be back next time on. Why, 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 why is this not a move?